Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Jonathan, Senior Communications Manager at the World Nuclear Association. And they discuss different uses for nuclear science, including energy, medicine, and heat generation. The challenges of getting nuclear energy to compete economically with fossil fuels and renewables, and how we can get the world to net zero emissions in the next 25 years. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. About a year or so ago, I was talking, interviewing a technologist, and they had gotten their start in the Navy, and they were working on nuclear submarines. And the nuclear submarines, he was explaining to me how infrequently they need to refuel because of the nuclear technology. And I was like, wow, if they were doing that like in the 80s and the 90s, you know, why isn't nuclear so prevalent today? Like, why don't I have a nuclear generator at my house or um, something like that? I was like, and then in my... Uh, so I'm not very experienced here. This is not my field of study. But in my little research, the thing I got from my armchair research was that um, nuclear hasn't advanced as fast as I'd hope it would or have have advanced because uh, like society kind of is scared of it a little bit. Do you think that's right or is that like a wrong interpretation? I, th- I think it's one of the things that uh, has behind the fact that nuclear hasn't been growing for the last 20 years or so overall um generation has been staying roughly the same since 2000 uh it grew over the last um five or six years but that's really been getting it back to to its peak so yeah i think public perception is is one of the issues it, it is something that has to be dealt with when people are looking at, at putting in a large nuclear reactor and that's that's one of the things we do use large nuclear reactors at the moment they're big power stations and the upside of that is that you don't need to have one in everybody's house as a central heating system you can have a relatively few of them supplying a lot of electricity so country like france gets about 75 percent of its electricity from 50 reactors that are on sites around the country so relatively few, and so that's not such an issue for people. But it, it certainly is one that, that uh, would need to be addressed, and it's one that if we wanted to go down the line of having smaller reactors that might be um, used in uh, cities or reactors that are used on uh, industrial sites or factories needing heat instead of using coal or gas would use nuclear process heat, then obviously the perception would be something that people would need to to deal with. And and that's one of the interesting things when we look at polling, some of the places where you have the best public opinion uh, about nuclear power plants is actually around nuclear power plants where they are in places around the country. So you have people, I think, because they work there or they know people who work there, they get a chance to talk to somebody and have a, a, you know, a better understanding of what this mysterious concrete box is all about. So once there's sort of a better knowledge of what nuclear is about, then you you do tend to get a, a you know a better public opinion, more support. But I do think perhaps it's overplayed as an issue. So, for example, in in the United Kingdom at the moment, there's just been some polling that's gone alongside a, a government announcement of looking to do new nuclear build over the next ten to twenty years, and that came up with figures where thirty five, forty percent of people would say they're favourable favourable about nuclear energy. 
maybe 15, 20% would say they're not favorable. And then there's a big group of people who either say don't know or say, well, neither one or the other. But still, that that's 80% of people not opposing nuclear energy. And I think for, for some people, that would come as quite a surprise. But that's that's what comes out when you actually ask people what they think rather than assuming uh, what people think. Is that curve been going more positive towards nuclear over time? Or have you not like researched it, that curve of how people view nuclear from the 80s to today? It's been holding pretty steady. Um, I'm trying to think if there has been a trend. Now, it, it's pretty much stayed where it is. Those figures, for the UK at least, which is the ones I'm most familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, they've been at that level for, for, for some time. There, there are variations up and down, uh, but not a huge huge amount. It, it's been generally in that kind of range. I, I would imagine that like, as you get farther away from the big nuclear incidents that have occurred, people would be more subsep- like more interested in pursuing the technology because you know you just look at energy density alone and even me being like a layman and not being in this industry at all i look at all the energy densities i'm like why aren't, why aren't we nuclear that seems like it makes the most sense it's really powerful energy it seems to not have as many um, issues with like the waste as you know the co2 going into the air and correct me if i'm wrong but so it seems pretty logical that that would be a good source of fuel for us well, yeah, I, I think it's surprising um, the the way in which public opinion did react to something like Fukushima. What we did see was was a dip. Um, again, and this is my familiarity with the UK, but also with with the US. I know this was the case. There was a dip, but the, it was fairly short term, and it, it then came back uh, quite quickly to to the level it was. So they have less impacts than we might imagine. They become notorious. I mean, one of the things is there have been very few accidents involving a nuclear power plant compared to you know accidents you have in in other energy industries or indeed you know the impacts as you say of of things like the greenhouse gas emissions particulates and so on that you get from from fossil fuel power plants so because there've been so few there's an easier way for them to be notorious if you like for for fukushima and for chernobyl to have you know a lot of recognition and, and a lot of people realizing that they were nuclear accidents and that does in, uh, you know, influence the way, we, the way they feel about nuclear energy. But there's been some really interesting analysis done by a, a group called Carbon Brief, looking at how the press uh, responded to, to nuclear energy in the UK over the last 10, 12 years. And around the time of Fukushima, of course, they, they covered the Fukushima Daiichi accident then. But over the whole year, overall commentary in the press was tending to be positive. The time when it moved to be negative was when we had the big investment decision to go forward with a new nuclear power plant, Hinkley Point C, in around 2016. And so at that time when that decision was made and people were considering that the, the large investment that is needed for a new reactor, that's when it started to generate some negative press. And once that decision was made and the plant is underway and being constructed, we've seen that swing around again. So again, now press in the UK for nuclear tends to being positive, you know, recognizing its role in in climate change and and more and more energy security coming out as an issue uh, that people are concerned about. Yeah, the only time I've ever seen nuclear stuff in the press in relation to like my everyday life is, I think five or six years ago in Florida in the United States, they were 
talking about building another nuclear plant. And that's when I said we already have nuclear plants. <laughs> I looked up a map and there's like there's a number of nuclear plants in the United States. And I go, oh, well, I guess nuclear energy is more prevalent than I imagined. Um, but the solar companies ran tons of marketing to like not build the the nuclear power plant and instead buy solar. And so it was this like energy battle happening in the media. Um, so that was like the one experience that, that I have had seeing uh, a nuclear power plant try to come about. Yeah, I mean, there, there is a lot in, in the US. There are more than 90 reactors in the US and they, they generate just under a fifth of the electricity. Um, so, and they've been there for a long while. They've been operational for, you know, 60 years there's been nuclear in the US. Yeah, it really frustrates me, this this competition there is between um, nuclear energy and renewables, or even once you get down to renewables between wind and solar uh, and all these different energy types, because it's it's destructive for us all. If you look at what's happened with climate change, it's been an issue that has been out there. You know, we've had the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which in 1992 said we're going to stop uh, concentrations of CO2 rising to a level where we're going to have harm to the, the environment. And over those 30 years, the, the share of electricity provided by fossil fuels has stayed the same. So it's stayed around 60 65% of the the um, generation of electricity uh, and the amount coming from non-fossil sources so from nuclear hydro wind solar um, those other low carbon sources has stayed around 35 percent and it's it's worse than standing still we have had a very big increase globally in the amount of electricity being consumed it's gone up by more than 50 percent so the ratio stayed the same but and we're generating consumption... more and more fossil fuels. Okay. Yeah. So global emissions of fossil fuels have continued to rise over all this time when we've had these annual meetings of governments, at these uh, COP meetings, aiming to reduce emissions, but failing to do so. It's only now that we're beginning to plateau out and we've, we've really used up our carbon budget. So instead of being able to spend the, the first half of the 21st century coasting down to a low carbon economy, we now have to really make an absolute nosedive to get to net zero by 2050. And what frustrates that is when you have this competition between all the different possible solutions there are, whether it's nuclear, solar, wind, and, and you know the things that go beyond electricity, when they start competing with each other, it just slows everything down. And clearly the fact that we've stood still in terms of the share of generation and you know the amount of fossil fuels burnt has gone up means we're just not doing enough. There, there shouldn't be a break on the amount that any one particular technology, uh, clean technology, should be able to contribute over the next 25 years as we head towards net zero and beyond. But there's still this infighting, and it's, it's so frustrating. So for the World Nuclear Organization, how... Do you fit into these conversations? Are you hosting, is, is the World Nuclear Organization hosting these conversations with countries to get their carbon down or is are you participating in it? How does that work? Oh, we'd like to. But one of the things about the World Nuclear Association, it is a global trade organization, trade association. So it represents a global industry. And although there is the United Nations, there is the 
international agreement that is the Kyoto Protocol, the Paris Agreement, and all these other climate agreements, they are agreed by nation states. And so decisions are still taken on a national basis. Uh, and so if there is any interaction between you know, industry or industry associations and government, it's done by national trade associations or you know, regional trade associations in the case of, of Europe. Whereas we, we, we try to engage, we, we um, make comments on the, um, the latest IPCC report, to, to take one example. We did go, some, about four of us went to the, the climate conference in Glasgow last November. But in terms of sort of access to governments, that, that doesn't really happen. What is needed, I think, from governments to actually implement the things that will help them achieve the goals that they're signing up for is the national energy policies amongst all the other climate change mitigation things they need to do. And that's something that they agree amongst themselves. So the individual nations determine their energy policy and they have to pick their own national energy policy to, to meet the obligations that they're making. And so, yeah, it doesn't, those, how we fix the climate isn't really something that is negotiated at these global meetings of the United Nations, at these COP meetings. They bring together groups. Um, they try to get a, a global consensus, but the solution comes out of national action. And so so you're at the World Nuclear Organization, and that's a professional trade? That's right. So World Nuclear Association. So we represent the, the global nuclear industry. We've got mem about 180 different member companies. Okay. We've been been around since the mid nineteen seventies in in various guises. Um, so yeah, that's that's our our role is is where there is a, a role for global representation, uh, like the United Nations. You know, we will be there, but also it's a place for for those individual industries. Some of them are national, some of them are multinational. It's a place for them to come together uh, and and discuss, uh, you know, prepare policy papers and so forth amongst themselves. So you're this professional association. You is it is it just focused on people who are doing nuke like energy things in nuclear, or is there medical nuclear? Is there other types of nuclear technologies that are a part of this? It's mostly about the energy side, but yeah, there are many other applications of nuclear technologies, uh, and we we are mostly about information provision. The, Probably one of the biggest roles we have is in providing information. And, you know, as I said, it has been a characteristic that because we're a global association, there isn't a global government. So we don't have that advocacy role in terms of political advocacy that national associations of, of all different industries have. But we have this thing, the World Wide Web. And so we have, you know, that that role, that responsibility to to provide information. So that is one of our major activities to uh, put out articles which are almost like uh, nuclear Wikipedia's pages. Yeah. So as, as clear as we can, as, as straight and information-based as we can. Uh, but we also do things like produce reports that look at the, the global industry, where it is now, where it's going to be over the next 25 years, um, and, and things like that. So that's, that's our global function. Yeah, I think it's cool that you bring that up because I got to do an interview with um, Sir Tim Berners-Lee about a year ago, and he was talking about how he created the World Wide Web at CERN, um, and that's like, and he's over in the UK as well, I believe. 
That's right. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, one of the stars of the show of the 2012 Olympic opening ceremony. <laughs> oh, cool! So, one of the yeah. one of the people who took part. Him and Isambard Kingdom Brunel, um, or somebody playing Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but get, getting back to that point, you you talked about other uses. There are other uses. So there are hundreds of thousands of of medical procedures every year that use nuclear medicine both in in diagnosis but also in treatment and another thing that i think is going to come to be more important is going to be where nuclear is used for energy uses other than electricity and it has been electricity that's been the focus but one of the ways that people see us dealing with the the climate crisis is to do more with electricity compared to other energy sources because we have proven ways a variety of proven ways of producing electricity with with virtually no greenhouse gas emissions and that's something that other sectors that need to be decarbonized don't have or they're they're still trying to develop the ways of doing that so you have got france which has got 75 percent nuclear i think about 10 percent uh hydro and some renewables as well so it, it uses a very small amount of um, fossil fuel for its electricity provision but it still uses quite a bit for heating. But we could move into providing more heating from electricity than from central heating systems. With, with transport, you can move into electric vehicles. I mean, that's now becoming legislation in many countries. So I think that's going to move at an amazing pace. But of course, then it's fine having an electric vehicle that doesn't use petrol or diesel, but you have to produce the electricity cleanly to make it a low-carbon transport option so you're going to need more generation capacity uh, not less so you're going to need to build even more clean generation and yeah there, there are things like the steel making industry cement industry these industries that use a lot of heat at the moment high temperature process heat they could get that from uh, reactors that are designed to supply heat rather than electricity yeah when my neighbor got one of the teslas he was very excited about the, uh, you know, electric cars, and and he was very excited about how he's not using any fossil fuels. And I was like, I, I don't know if you know this, but the power plant that powers our neighborhood runs off fossil fuels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's still, it's still in most places. It still means there's a benefit to having that electric car rather than using oh, I'm sure, dude, gas, or, gas or diesel. But yes. it needs to go and be completely low carbon. So. Yeah, it's just going to make, it's just going to increase the demand for for electricity that we have, um, and and that's going to drive the way we we build new capacity of whatever clean energy we have. Oh yeah, I was, I, I'm a hundred percent for electric cars. Honestly, they're the coolest cars. I'm a nerd, so the way that their motors work, they've got. <laughs> <laughs> they're, yeah. they're, it's insane how how much you can do. I mean, I like to tell people when you go to the dentist, they're not using a diesel drill on your mouth. They're using an electric motor because it's incredibly precise control. Yeah, I think it's great. And I, I, the one thing I do wonder is the fact that Tesla are a premium brand. They yeah. build cars that you'd buy instead of a BMW, instead of a Mercedes. In general, that's where they've pitched. They're very high tech inside. They have a you know huge flat screen TV, basically uh, far bigger than you really need, but it's there because it feels good, and and so that's that's great. But most people don't drive BMWs. 
You know, they they drive a well, depending on which country you're in, a various sizes of Ford or Nissan or, or Renault, whatever. And I know those companies are now coming forward with their with their electric vehicles, but it's how are we going to build an affordable electric car rather than a luxury electric car? That's that's going to be one of the big challenges over the next five, ten years. I'm optimistic too. I, I think we're going to get there. And I've even gotten to talk with people that are helping solve the problem of finding the materials, like using artificial intelligence and imaging and, and data to help figure out. I think the company was called um, Cobalt Metals. And they were designing all sort, all these brilliant people they brought together to figure out uh, how to uh, use predictive analysis to determine where these materials might be and uh, pursue them like that. So they cut down on the discovery time of, of new harvesting locations. And uh, so it's it's so cool to see like, okay, well, you know, you start using batteries at a scale you've never needed batteries before. Now you have these material problems, but new companies come out. And it, it really kind of feels like... Um, we're all working together as a species to sort of do something pretty cool. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of, of how this is progressing. I even saw that what's really popular over here is like General Motors, right? Um, and they, I think, have a version within like the next two or three years, like every model that they have, all their core models will have an electric version. They have you know, the electric pickup truck coming out for Ford. Um, they have a, they, they did this weird thing with the Mustang where they like made it different and then made it electric. Uh, I'm not sure I would do that with the Mustang brand, but it looks fine. Like it looks like a cool car. I just wouldn't have like replaced the Mustang with it. Um, yeah, I'm off. I'm off topic. But the electric cars, I'm very excited about. I've already got. I don't have the electric car yet, but I've got the 50 amp plug in my garage. So uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to yeah. when I will get the electric car. Yeah. Oh yeah, we're not. We're not going to have a choice soon. I mean, I. I don't know the legislation position in in the US, but in the UK, basically from 2030, you will not be able to buy a gas or diesel car. It will have to be low emission, most likely electric. So yeah, there's there's another eight years of petrol cars, and then that's it. So of course so they're going to keep them keep the old ones on the road for a while, and you know people will probably want all those old uh, diesel and petrol cars partly because they they will be old cars and they will be affordable for so for the for the 17 year old who wants to get his first car and who wants to spend 500 pounds on something that might last another year they'll probably still want to get hold of of petrol cars but yeah from 2030 new cars will have to be low emission so low emission is that like hybrid or is it no petrol no diesel i think it's i think it's no, not hybrid. I think hybrid was potentially on the cards, um, but certainly there was a lot of pressure to say, well, if you do that, then people are going to have notional hybrids. Yeah. They're going to have hybrids where they stick in a you know a little rechargeable 9-volt battery just yeah. enough to power the lights and say, oh, this qualifies. This will do. And then stick a 2-liter engine in it to give it some performance. But yeah, I, th- I I think it's still fluid, and and as we get to that twenty thirty deadline, I think there may be, you know, either things will have progressed so far that people will want that anyway, yeah, or it may be that you know the technology hasn't brought down the costs. You know, we haven't quite had the cost reductions that we would have wanted, so there will be complaints about, and rightly so, complaints that you know, it's making transport something for the rich, and and there are places 
where you can't rely on public transport. You do need to have your own car. So what exactly is enforced in 2030, I think we shall see. But it's it's definitely sent a, it's set a strong signal to the, the automotive industry to say you need to move away from the internal combustion engine. Yeah, it's 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 a step in the right direction. Like nothing's ever perfect, but okay. So the the main pe- reason why people join uh, the World Nuclear Association is what? Well, it's it's companies that join. So okay. it and I think companies join because first of all, that there is the role we have as an advocate for nuclear energy, and they being from the industry, they want to support that role. So you know, we have this this global reach that we have through our website and through some of our our reports and and they're supporting that function that we have but yeah it is also the fact that we our industry used to be very national so individual countries would develop their own reactor designs they'd have their own fuel cycle facilities uh, their own regulation uh, and they would do it all themselves and so you could function just within your own country but the, the way in which the industry has evolved over the last 20 years is to become much more global. So you're having you know, reactors of different kinds exported around the world. The fuel cycle itself now is something that is is very international. Um, you know, uranium is mined uh, in many countries around the world, and then it gets processed, it gets uh, enriched, it gets fabricated into fuel, and you can use different sources for all these different services from all around the world. Um, and so it has just become a much more global industry. And so there's a need for all these companies to have a way in which they can come together. So you know, we have conferences like other trade associations do. Uh, and that's an opportunity for, for all these different companies to come together and uh, you know, exhibit, to, to make business contacts, to, to retain business contacts. Um, and just just get together and be part of that that global industry and it's that's an activity that we've been really trying to keep going over the last two years when of course international travel um you know conferences of that kind have just not happened and so we've we've made a big push to have the the zoom conferences to have other ways in which uh, our, our members can come together uh and that may end up being something that actually makes our role more significant because it's always been the the people who can have the time and the money to to fly into to London or wherever our conferences are taking place they're the ones who to come to the meetings but for some of the smaller companies that are involved uh, in the industry that's that's too much of an investment to make um, and so the fact that any of them now can sign up and you know participate in one of our virtual meetings I think is something that we're going to keep going going forward um and there's a big environmental benefit in that as well in in cutting down travel and so forth um so yeah that that is one of the things i hope that we're going to do keep on doing going forward because that's a way in which we can keep our our global perspective that we give to these companies um applicable and accessible to to all of them yeah, and it allows another benefit is that it helps spread ideas faster because those people who wouldn't be able to attend or might be at different levels of business because they can participate now. Um, I've got several friends that own like conference uh, type businesses, and uh, 
I've always talked with them and, and found it interesting how they each view the online mixing. Some have been like mm-hmm. very into it since the beginning. Some are like, no, you have to be here. That's the value. You have to be in the room. We won't record them. We won't stream them. But it's been interesting to see how everybody sort of adapted and um, gotten on board with the with the live uh, streaming. But I, I, I was curious, um, before I forget, I wanted to ask you about like how long have you been studying nuclear? How long have you been in this field and why did you get into it? I, I got into it uh, really straight out of university. So I did um, a degree and a PhD at a university in, in Liverpool. Uh, it wasn't a nuclear energy um, PhD. It was called um, Studies of Nuclear Magnetic Resonance, but that's more a, a spectroscopic technique just for examining a, a fairly basic chemical process that was uh, was going on in this, this setup that we did. Um, and from that, I, I wanted to go and continue doing research. And when I looked uh, at the job offers that were available to somebody who was doing a, a PhD, a lot of the companies wanted people of that type to go into management. They wanted them to manage a lab or manage a team to do research, not to actually continue the research itself. And one of the few opportunities there there was um, was with a company called British Nuclear Fuels, which was the main um, nuclear company in the UK at that time. Uh, and they had a, a big site up at Sellafield where they were reprocessing nuclear fuel. And that's where you um, basically take fuel that's been in a reactor, dissolve it, separate out the uranium and the plutonium uh, from the other components, the fission products that build up in, in the fuel as it's being used. And then that uranium plutonium can be reused. Um, or it's just another better way of processing used fuel uh, for eventual disposal. Either way, it's it's the the thing that was happening at that that site uh, up in Cumbria, which is in the the northwest of England. And they they had positions available. They were making actually quite a uh, a big investment in developing their their research and development uh, capabilities at that time. And so there was still the opportunity with them to to do research rather than to manage research. And, and that was very attractive to me. What I found out was, because it's a nuclear site, the regulation and the safety requirements ramp up 10 times what it was in my little lab at the university. And in fact, it, you can't wander in to the lab one day and go, oh, I think I'm going to do that and see what happens, which had been a characteristic of university research. Well, it was back in those days. I, I expect it's changed. Um, no, you have to fill out a proposal, get it approved, reviewed, checked, and maybe a month later you'd be able to do the thing you plan to do. So I didn't get a lot of actual wet chemistry research done there, but I found myself drifting more and more into looking at nuclear energy and its its role. Actually, this, this tied in with the beginnings of the interest in climate change. So it's around about 1990, early 1990s. And I just drifted more and more within the company and looking at that. So I moved away from research and development uh, into our corporate strategy department and into our, our what was then our commercial department. And these were the areas where these kind of policy developments that were taking place 
um, were cited. Uh, and also I got more involved in some of the dialogue that was taking place amongst industry and between industry and government about what measures could be introduced to tackle climate change. So things like emission trading, uh, things like what should the formulation of a carbon tax be? Uh, and I just got more and more involved in that. And then that broadened uh, into looking at nuclear energy and climate change as a, a broader topic, um, sustainable development, uh, you know, going beyond just the greenhouse gas side of things, but into the broader issues of sustainable development. And I really enjoyed that because although it's going beyond being a lab coat, white coat wearing um, scientist in that way, it's still clearly a very scientific um, part of the business and part of what we do. And so I, I enjoyed that. And also because it is climate change is not about nuclear energy. Nuclear energy is one cog in a potential solution to the challenge of climate change and, and what we need to do. So you do deal with a lot more than just, you know, your particular silo of being somebody in the nuclear industry. You know, we, we, the, the reach of different issues that I get to, to, you know, explore, um, to communicate on, to, to, to learn more about, uh, is, is much broader, I think, from, from going down the direction I have. So, Okay, so proliferation is like, uh, uh, explain that to me uh, better, what that word means. Well, it, it is, I suppose proliferation is, way of putting it would be diversion. So making sure there isn't diversion of materials that are being used for the civil nuclear industry. And who, who, away who into, does into that? Other purposes. How do they do it's, it? It's, do it? it's so there, there, there's just very good monitoring. So there'll be online monitoring. Uh, one of the organizations that's involved in this is the IAEA. Um, and what they have is they have feeds of information coming from nuclear sites um, that allow them to monitor what is, what's taking place on those sites. Um, they're, they're just very strong controls uh, on this. And uh, yeah, it's one of those ones where um, if I told you, I, well, I wouldn't kill you, but I probably shouldn't <laughs> tell you. <laughs> no, I, yeah I, the threat goes the other way if i told you i'd be killed <laughs> yeah there you go <laughs> we don't want to say it we, we have a megaphone right <laughs> now we don't want to say that um yeah but y exactly like for example uh a while back i was interested in um what it would take to get like an ordinance license or like an explosive license and the chain of paperwork and the amount of stuff you have to go through in order to purchase or transport or anything explosive materials is just it's an enormous undertaking to get that type of um to get that type of license uh and naturally if you guys had so the, so the same material uh by by its like lowest level of properties the same material that they're using for research could be used like in a nuclear bomb and they put these controls in place to make sure that that's not happening is that is that what we're talking about that is and um, this is something that has been an issue with the the agreement that there, there was with the iran and and the, the breakdown of that agreement um because one of the differences is in how much you enrich natural uranium uh, in one isotope, the, the fissile isotope, uranium-235. For for most civil reactors, 
you only need to increase the enrichment from round about 1% uh, up to 5%, something in that region. And at that enrichment, it's just not a viable material for air any kind of military purpose that you're thinking of yeah you need to go to much higher levels of enrichment um you know up towards 60 70 percent and so you can monitor an enrichment plant um and know what's happening with that plant know where the materials in that plant are trace the materials coming in the materials going out and um you know ensure that that's they are being used in the right way can you monitor them from like satellites to see what type of materials they have or how rich their materials are? From, yeah, I don't, you, it's more that you have monitors on site. Okay. Rather than being able to stare down from space. Um, centrifuge, you, know, you, you enrich, most of enrichment now is done through things called centrifuges, which are uh, ultra centrifuges, very large installations of multiple hundreds if not thousands of these centrifuges that have to spin um, uranium fluoride at high speed to try to separate out separate out uranium-235 from uranium-238 because uh, you have to enrich it in this isotope but you can't use chemical processes to separate out an isotope of an element you have to use its physical properties and the fact it's slightly different atomic weights uh, between those two isotopes is, is done through these these enrichment uh, facilities and there, there are relatively few of them they're they're big installations uh and yeah they you know the monitoring takes place on site so is it like a different I, i'm just i'm going to go a little bit deeper because i'm kind of interested in this i'm trying what i'm going to try to get to maybe i'll speed it up how like how do they make it so that like if i'm a country and i want to lie that like i can't lie about what I'm doing with it. Like, is it because the people that are in the plants are like part of a world organization um, or some sort of like other thing and, and their scientist-ness uh, morals say that they're going to report it or is it they can do whatever they want as long as they fake the paperwork? I don't think you can fake the paperwork. The, the, the way in which it is imposed is through, through very close monitoring of the materials um, and making available data about what's happening at the plant available to others. Now, of course, there have been military programs. Actually, usually it goes the, the other way to what people might think. So in, in general, it tends to be that you'll have a secret military program, and maybe later there will be a spin-off and, and a civil program will come after it. That's what happened in the, the early days in the 1950s and the 1960s. It was military comes first. And then civil comes afterwards, because because these are things that are, are scrutinised very closely. Those that are covered by the the non proliferation treaty, and therefore it's a really dumb thing to do to try to do what you're suggesting. You know, the idea of you set something up which is monitored, where there's the interest of the entire industry and the interest of the entire international community, and to ensure it's being done right. Yeah, you, you you're exposing yourself to an enormous amount of scrutiny. By doing something in the the civil nuclear realm, yeah. If you're going to do it in a clandestine way, you don't bother getting into the civil industry. You just do it as a military practice. Like I didn't even my brain didn't pick up on that until you mentioned it. Like, you're we're all, this context of this conversation is about 
how they make sure that the proliferation doesn't happen in the civil world because they can just buy it militarily. Are there, are there, and then they can just do what they want to do militarily over there. Um, not having to like fake paperwork or anything like that. Are there countries that we won't trade uh, uranium with or some sort of uh, radioactive or nuclear material with? This is going a bit beyond sort of like my my climate change <laughs> yeah. part. That's um, my job. I find the edges. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the answer is yeah. The answer is yes. The um, you know, trade has to be covered by these agreements, um, or there has to be particular agreements in place to um, allow trade to happen. Okay. One of my producers had a sciencey question for me. They said they wanted me to ask this to you. Um, uh, fission and fusion. I believe mm-hmm. it was that fission is more popular. It's like more used for energy production, and fusion is less used. And I think the fusions where you do like a bunch, like you put really lightweight things and hit them together. Um, and he wanted to know why one is so popular and the other is not as popular. Um, because the only fission energy we can use at the moment is solar. Okay. So. There's a lot of work being done researching fission. The joke about fission is that it's always 30 to 50 years in the future, whichever date you start from. I think that's coming down, but to give one idea, um, there is a demonstration reactor that's currently uh, starting construction, early days of construction, called ITER. And that might be moving towards getting to running as a a demonstration plant coming up towards the 2040s something like that there'll be some stages along the way of them trying to prove that this can happen Um, and that will just be a demonstration plant and after that you might get the first generation of commercial fusion plants sometimes in the 2050s and beyond certainly in the second half of the century now there are other groups that are trying to do things uh, in a smaller way. Uh, sometimes this is national research, sometimes this is private research. And so ITER, which is this huge international collaboration, isn't the only um, thing in, that's underway in terms of f- fusion research, but it's the big multinational project. But even so, you know, these these smaller scale ones, hopefully some of them will come through because we could do with some more ways of producing energy having more options on the table um but at the yet as yet it is still at the demonstration stage and what they're demonstrating is the ability to produce plasmas uh to maintain plasmas because with a a fusion reactor you you are trying to replicate what happens in the sun basically so converting isotopes of hydrogen into helium not exactly the same as what happens in the sun but the same fusion process but because we haven't got the huge gravitational pull that the sun has to force uh, these hydrogen atoms together to make them fuse we're actually going to have to have even more extreme conditions to make fusion happen and so there's no material that can resist or stand up to the, the the huge heat that would be produced by a fusion reaction so they have to be constrained by magnetic forces so use magnets to constrain this fusioning material and so at the moment one of the main things that is being tried to be proven is that there is this ability to maintain um, a fusion reaction for for a little while 
within one of these huge magnetic fields or to maintain the plasma um, for some time. So it's it's still early early stages. There's there's some good promising uh, progress being made, but yeah, that's the situation with fusion. So it's it's got potentially a significant role um, second half of this century, let's say, you know, in terms of big commercial deployment. So everything that's being done in terms of nuclear generation uh, since 1953 has been done with fission. And fission is where you take um, a larger nucleus, a uranium nucleus, uranium-235. That gets hit with uh, a neutron, and it forces the uh, nucleus to basically split apart and split into two smaller elements. It's transmutation. But that process of splitting from one big uranium atom to two smaller elements releases energy because the mass of the two elements isn't quite the same as the mass of the uranium atom. Um, and it's E equals mc squared. A little bit of mass is lost, generates a lot of electricity. Um, so everything is done so far in terms of nuclear electricity through the, the fission process. Well, that's pretty cool. So they know how to make this um, a fusion thing happen. The material would just we don't have a material that could withstand the temperatures that it would produce if you made it happen or it's 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 that you can't what you can't do is say okay i'll build a container and i'll somehow find a way of making those uh hydrogen atoms uh hydrogen isotopes fuse together to make helium and let them just be in this this vessel this reactor you know whatever it needs it needs a lot of what it needs in the in the um, the sun is a lot of heat and a lot of gravitational attraction to force these atoms together to make them to make them fuse to overcome the repulsion there is between two positive nuclei, so that they this fusion takes place and that then, for exactly the same reasons about conservation of mass, that then releases energy when that happens because the helium atom that is produced or the helium nucleus that is produced has a little less mass than the original mass of the two um, hydrogen isotopes. Um, Has anyone just ever like asked the particles nicely to merge? <laughs> <laughs> it would be great if you could do that. Right? Um, yeah. But uh, they've they've proven to be stubborn even to communication. <laughs> what are you, as we start to wrap up, what is the most exciting thing that you see happening personally, like subjectively, what is the most exciting thing to you happening right now in nuclear? Number one, number one would be the excitement of solving this climate change issue. And I know that might not be the big tech thing, and I can, I, I've got a couple of tech things that are really interesting. But if you're saying just by doing more of what we're currently doing with the, the technology we've got now, the large reactors contributing more along with a whole bunch of other options, it should be exciting to save the planet. And that's fundamentally what, you know, the goal of the whole climate process, the climate change mitigation process, is, is aiming at doing. It is that serious. Uh, but then again, achieving that should be that exciting. So just because we may be able, in the large part, to rely on proven technologies, and we're going to have to rely on proven technologies because we need to get to net zero over the next 20, 25 years, that's still going to be exciting if we can do it. And it will make the world very different. In some ways, it'll be the same. If we've got 
different ways of supplying electricity and for for you know the average person to think well i'm still plugging in the same devices into the same socket in the wall i don't care that it's come from a different power source in terms of you know what i do with the electricity then you know it it will seem hopefully very mundane but you know it will it'll have benefits in climate change it will have benefits in terms of air pollution um you know it, it will clear our skies i can still remember from when we did have lockdowns here in the uk a couple of years ago suddenly seeing how blue the skies got because we weren't having the traffic pollution and we weren't having you know the pollution that does come from from burning fossil fuels um you know that was one of the few upsides of of the whole situation but potentially if we move to a cleaner energy system that is going to happen and that is going to be hugely exciting if we're looking from a technology side then it is the things that are going beyond the conventional electricity production that are really the things that are exciting so so moving into reactors that will just operate at a much higher temperature um, and they will provide that heat directly they'll use uh, new processes so instead of using water as a, a moderator or even water as a, a coolant they they'll be producing their potentially gas cooled um, reactors and that gases are going to be the delivery system for the heat you know that is something which i think can can revolutionize the way in which industry works. And it's something that you can do with nuclear technologies that you can't do with some of the other low carbon electricity generation technologies. A wind turbine isn't going to provide that that high temperature heat that you can produce with with a nuclear reactor. And then I think the the, the move into small model reactors, these these smaller reactors that may be a tenth or even less the size of a conventional reactor they have the potential to have a lot more applications and and to be able to take electricity production heat supply and desalination uh, into areas which you know won't be somewhere where you could put a 1500 megawatt power plant of any kind because it would just be too much energy in one place so it's just going to broaden the 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 number of applications that um you know, nuclear technologies are going to be able to provide. And, and as well as tackling the climate issue, that's going to help with with development. And, you know, it is amazing that we still have, you know, on our planet maybe 800 million people who don't have access to electricity. And that's, that's just crazy in, in 2022 that that's the case. Many, many more, you know, billions more don't have access to, to reliable electricity. So just providing a clean way of producing electricity because we get so much from electricity i mean you know nuclear is going to be the source for a, a good proportion of that but we do so much with electricity and electricity really brings so many benefits that if we can democratize that if we can spread that and get that accessible to people globally it's going to enrich so many lives and make people's standards of living worldwide so much better that yeah that that has to be exciting. Yeah, it's definitely happening too. I've been talking with people over in Africa. Africa is like exploding right now in their growth and getting them internet and power and things like that have been uh, very important. And one of the advantages that I think they do have is that as they enter this global market, they're learning from the best material possible. So like, you know, we went in engineering or software engineering, you know, there was a lot of, lot 
up for debate over the past 15 years about the best ways to do things. And those have all sort of like shaken out. And now you have like your best practices. And so they can sort of, you know, all cohesively like learn the best practices from the get go and, and be able to push things uh, faster, farther. So I'm super excited to see countries, countries develop. And I love seeing the different technologies. Um, help those those people you know go farther for one example i live in an hour outside of nashville tennessee it's a big music city um and it's like this we would call it the sticks here in america it's like out in farmland well i have gigabit internet i have gigabit fiber and they just got it last year it's like i just bought the house a few months ago but um that was like a big selling point they're like oh there's gigabit fiber at the road you know you have to like pay to have them bring it into the house and get service but they waited 10 or 12 years for it, but they got the most advanced. So now my connection's like more advanced than somebody like living in downtown Chicago or something. Cause the, the equipment and everything that I have is, is, is just the newest, most advanced stuff out there. Cause they just installed it. Yeah. I think that's, 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 that's absolutely it. And it's, it's this technology leapfrogging is something that's brought up a lot um, for the way in which the countries that are still, developing that are still you know aspiring to to improve standards of living improve their competitiveness their economic activity they're not going to repeat the last 70 years based on where was where was the uk or where was the us when it started having electricity or grid supply okay we'll repeat that we'll all plug our phones into a landline and use landline phones because that's that's the way you do it that's not the way we do it now we 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 are more global, and hopefully, you're right, we'll be able to pick the best technologies, or those countries will be able to pick the best technologies that are available to them now um, to bring in things like the, you know, communication, the internet, and, and that's a huge democratizing thing that, that you know, for, for, it can help in terms of education and so much more. So, so yeah, ex exactly. It, it's not going to be everybody copying what's happened before. It's going to be bringing in what's available now to meet the challenges that people have now. Absolutely. Well, well said. I have a fun question for you. You might, might not know the answer, but um, if I were to take my entire lifetime of energy consumption needs and were to visualize it in the form of uranium, are we talking a cup, a bucket, a swimming pool? Like how much energy would a human use in terms of the amount, the one comparison I do know is the amount of waste that would be produced in terms of the amount of fuel. Okay. And okay. so spent fuel, that, and maybe that's the way you need to, you know, that's the number one concern. What do you do with what you produce? We're talking something like a Coca-Cola can or soft pop beverage of your choice. So something like a, a, a fizzy drink can's worth of material would be sufficient because a nuclear reactor... If we can go from first principles, nuclear reactors are something like 70 meters high, something in that range, the, the buildings. But the actual fuel assembly is about four meters high. And there's a couple of hundred of those fuel assemblies in a reactor. And you put in new fuel roughly once every 18 months. So for a reactor that might be big enough to supply a couple of million people with electricity, over its 60-year lifetime, the spent fuel, the used fuel that it would produce, would 
would then go into that swimming pool you mentioned. So the entire fuel use for that reactor would go into into a into water because water is a great way of absorbing the radiation and it's a great way of cooling uh, used fuel. So yeah, the spent fuel pools look like a big swimming pool, and that's enough to store all the the fuel um, that that reactor would have used over the sixty years. That's crazy. And then, yeah, whatever your share of that, whatever your share of it, if that's supplying a million or two million people with electricity, then your millionth or two millionth of that swimming pool is is what's left. That's crazy. That is so cool. Wow, a, a soda can of of byproduct from a lifetime of energy use. That that uh, that makes me excited uh, to see what will happen over the next twenty years with uh, nuclear. So I'm on team nuclear. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited for it. The, my, I've got family who are physicians and they talk about the different things nuclear can do medically. And they've been talking about that for, for a little bit now. So I'm a, I'm a big fan. Now, do you have a book or do you have anything we can promote for you? The best thing for me to, to mention would be that the, the website, um, okay. particularly if people watching this have you know, there's questions that have been posed. Uh, if if I haven't explained things well enough, or if, if people want to know more, then then come to our website, which is world-nuclear.org, or just Google for nuclear energy, Google World Nuclear Association, and you'll come to that website. And yeah, considering the amount of effort that I and, and a lot of my colleagues put into writing that, it'll be great to have some more readers. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.